When I was about um, 10 or 11 years old, my family had a, a really hard winter. I may, I may have told this story before. Um, it started with my dad tearing his ACL, playing basketball, uh, jumping up trying to block somebody's shot, as was his, his, uh, one of his favorite things to do. You know, came down on someone's leg or came down wrong and tore his ACL. And this was like, this was a long time ago. This was not like today. Uh, he was like on the couch in this machine that was like constantly moving, moving his knee and totally out of commission for doing anything around the house. Um, we, we grew up in a, in a rural town, and so we had horses. My sister was really into horses, and when my mom was out one night during this same period of time, she just tripped, and uh, she was feeding the horses or putting them away or something like that and, and dislocated her shoulder. And then um, right around that time, my sister just got, like, really sick. And so she was just, like, laid up on the couch. And I remember sitting in our, our kind of family room in the house and hearing this loud, like, <laughs> noise. And we're like, what was that? My dad, who was sitting on the couch in his machine, uh, instantly was like, that was the pool. Like, it was such a cold winter that the pool had frozen it was an above-ground circular pool, and it just collapsed, and the water rushed out down this hill. And so all these things are happening. I'm a 10-, 11-year-old kid, and uh, I remember sitting in, uh, laying down in my bed one night and starting to feel this, this fear come over me. You know, like, why is all this stuff happening? Like, what, what is going to happen? Like, what if my parents die? Like, as, as you start to see your parents, like, their own humanity... I started just going through my mind, like all these questions of, you know, what would I do if my parents died or our house burned down? I'm just thinking, like, what is the next bad thing that's going to happen to our family? And oftentimes we're asking a question, you know, where is God? You know, or what's going to happen when things are difficult in our life? And I just want you to know, like, kids are asking that question. I was asking that question, you know, 31 years ago. As a, as a kid, just laying in my bed, thinking through, like, what's happening in my life? We're, we're going through this series on Joseph right now, and here's a guy that went through some hard stuff, as did his family and all of the dysfunction that was in that family that we've been talking about. Last week, when we had Hope Sunday and Michael uh, Stefano preached, we heard this Big kind of, you know, here I am party that Joseph has with his brothers, this big reveal. And we see uh, some of the resolution of the story, but the story actually goes on a little bit longer. And today we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna see a little, some interesting pictures of, that God is going to show us about where he is and, and, and what he's doing in the, in the midst of the difficult seasons of our life. So I want to read, we're going to be going through chapters 46 and 47. You're welcome to follow along in your Bible, on your phone. You can read on the screen, or sometimes it's helpful just to close your eyes and listen, uh, as people would have done thousands of years ago who couldn't read or didn't have a copy of, of the Bible. All right? So we're going to start in Genesis 46, and um, here's how it's, we pick up the narrative. Um, big reveal. And now they're sent, they're, they've sent word back up to Joseph's father with the brothers for them to come back. Here it is, Genesis 46, verse 1. 
So Israel, a.k.a. Jacob, set out with all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Jacob left Beersheba, and Israel's sons took their father Jacob and their children and their wives in the carts that Pharaoh had sent to transport him. So Jacob and all his offspring went to Egypt, taking with them their livestock and the possessions they had acquired in Canaan. Jacob brought with him to Egypt his sons and grandsons and his daughters and granddaughters, all his offspring. God was there all along. Now, if you remember some of the history in this story, God has appeared to Jacob a number of times in a number of different ways. But after the death of Joseph, nothing. How many years was it? I mean, Joseph was like 17 or something when all the stuff, the crazy stuff went down. I think it's something like 30 plus years, I mean, sorry, um, 13 plus years now of just radio silence. No visions, no dreams, no angel of the Lord appearing, no encounter with God. Boy, would have been nice to have one of those to say, hey, by the way, Joseph's alive. Don't worry about it. I got this all, I got this all under control. Why didn't God do that? I don't know. We saw that Jacob did not quite have the best response in the midst of the hardship. Everything is against me. He's still playing favorites with his sons. Um, And yet God is gracious in this moment to say, hey, it's okay for you to go to Egypt. Now, we can't answer all the why questions of why he didn't appear or, you know, why he waited till now and, you know, what was he doing all those years? I mean, we see the narrative in Joseph's life. But the thing that we have to take away from this is God was there all along. God was there all along. Jacob didn't see it, and it doesn't seem like he actually took it very well. He didn't respond in a whole lot of faith, and yet God is still gracious to him to give him the confidence to go to Egypt. And the reason this is important, it's hard to understand for us, but it's because of God promising this land to them and moving him to that place. And really he needing a word from the Lord to move out of there and go to a foreign land to go to Egypt. When you are in a hard place, you have to know God is there all along. You may have zero perception of his presence. There may not be any signs or dreams or visitations or any, like, you know, road marks along the way, but he's there. It's really hard to see that in your own life. It takes, it takes a risk of faith 
But we have this story written for our instruction that we will know that someone that has gone through something incredibly painful and incredibly hard, that God was there all along. Now, even if Joseph had died, and that was the tragic end of the story, God was still there all along, working things for good. And you need to know that that really, looking back now, that we have something better than Jacob had. Because Jesus has already come and dealt with sin and sent his spirit to live within us. God wants you to know that the fire of his love will always burn hotter than the fire of your trial. The fire of his love is always burning hotter than the fire of your trial. No matter what you're going through and the pain of that or the loneliness or the loss and the grief, maybe even betrayal, God is welcoming you. He's inviting you to the enjoyment of his love, the experience of which will surpass and overshadow the pain that you are experiencing. That is his will. You have to know that that is his will for your life. It is not the Christian life is drudgery and really hard, and I hope to make it to the end and hold on to Jesus, and then I'll finally have some relief from the difficulty of this world. No, no, no. That is not the picture that the Bible paints of what the Christian life is to be about. I came, I say these things, that my joy would be in you, and your joy would be full. Anything less is is not the gospel for your life. It doesn't mean there's not grief. Doesn't mean that in this world you will have trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. Take heart. I have overcome the world, meaning that Jesus is saying. I walked through this life and experienced the pain that you have felt. As a human being, not playing the God card, look at me, I'm God, I'm Jesus. He emptied himself of that, the scripture says. He completely and 100% relied on the Holy Spirit, not on his own divinity, to obey in every circumstance. And to trust that God was working it out even in the pain. And that in that, the connection to his father was enough, was enough, was more than enough to work through all the pain and the grief and the loss in his life. I'm just telling you, we cannot allow each other to settle for something less. In this world, you will have trouble. Life is hard. I don't know if you remember this sermon from years ago. The greater truth is that life is good. So if we are walking around and the mantra that we are mostly saying is that life is hard, we are missing it. I'm not saying deny that life is hard. Jesus is owning that. You will have trouble. But that is not the focus that we can have in our life. We have to shift our lens to see the goodness that is here. Corey Ten Boom is thanking the Lord for fleas in a Nazi prison camp while all the rest of her family are dying. We can, we can do the same. 
I'm telling you, the spirit of the living God is in you to give thanks in all circumstances and to see that life is good is a greater truth than the reality that life is hard. We're dealing with fact versus truth. You guys tracking with me here? These testimonies of the people of God through history are ours. Every time a person of faith, a follower of Jesus, walks through a trial and comes out the other side stronger and more in love with Jesus than ever, that's our story. And we can say, yeah, me too. Because if they can do it, you can do it. I'm telling you right now, if they did it, you can. The same spirit that lives within you is the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And that has, and that has ministered to all these saints through the centuries. The deception is unbelief that God's not there. He doesn't care. He's not working anything. He's not doing anything. And because I can't perceive him, he's not, he's not working. And this is really hard, and that's the greatest reality of my life. God wants to take us to the next level. It's that Many saints have, have, have accessed that have gone before us. Every testimony in the Bible is your testimony. It's your testimony. Because it's not a testimony to them. It's a testimony to the Spirit of God. And what a surrendered life, what He can do in that life. I'm, tell, I'm preaching to myself. I hope you understand that. I am not standing on the stage saying, look at me. I've got it all worked out. I'm saying, you need to challenge me when I start, when my reality rises up to, man, this is hard. This is so hard. Ah. You need to say, Brian, life is good. The fire of his love burns hotter. What's the next step he's asking you to take? Maybe it's been a long season. Maybe it's been a decade for you, like it was for Jacob. I'm telling you, God was there all along. All right. I'm going to summarize the next part. Um, Big greeting, Jacob and Joseph wrap their arms around each other. They make it down to Egypt. I mean, just, you know, they weep. Uh, They appear before Pharaoh. They go through this kind of, you know, uh, ancient Near East politeness. uh, And then Pharaoh lets them settle in this land of Goshen. And so they move the whole family down there. He has this long list in chapter 46 of all the relatives that went down. I won't read that to you, although it would be be fun. Okay? All right. So now we're down in chapter uh, 47, verse 7. Skipping ahead a little bit. Okay? Then Joseph brought his father Jacob in and presented him before Pharaoh. So this is kind of the, the politeness I was talking about. After Jacob blessed or greeted Pharaoh, Pharaoh asked him, How old are you? Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have have been few and difficult, and they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. Then Jacob blessed or said farewell to Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers in Egypt and gave them property in the best part of the land, the district of Ramses, as Pharaoh directed. Joseph also provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to the number of their children. There was no food, however, in the whole region because the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying, and he brought it 
to Pharaoh's palace. Stay with me. When the money of the people of Egypt and Canaan was gone, all Egypt came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money is all gone. Then bring your livestock, said Joseph. I will sell you food in exchange for your livestock since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and he gave them food in exchange for their horses, their sheep and goats, their cattle and donkeys. And he brought them through that year with food in exchange for all their livestock. When that year was over, they came to him the following year and said, We cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone and our livestock belongs to you, there is nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we perish before your eyes, we and our land as well? Buy us and our land in exchange for food, and we with our land will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Give us seed so that we may live and not die, and that the land may not become desolate. So Joseph bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's. And Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. However, he did not buy the land of the priests because they received a regular allotment from Pharaoh and had food enough from the allotment Pharaoh had given them. That is why they did not sell their land. Joseph said to the people, Now that I have bought you and your land today for Pharaoh, here is seed for you so you can plant the ground. When the crop comes in, give a fifth of it to Pharaoh. The other four-fifths you may keep as seed for the fields and as food for yourselves and your households and your children. You have saved our lives, they said. May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. We will be in bondage to Pharaoh. So Joseph established it as a law concerning land in Egypt, still in force today, that a fifth of the produce belongs to Pharaoh. It was only the land of the priests that did not become Pharaoh's. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen, as you just heard. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. Last paragraph here. I'm going to read this part. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt, but when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say, he said. Swear to me, he said. And Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Now, I read this passage, and I was like, what is Joseph doing? Now, obviously, he's keeping these people alive, but it says he reduced them to servitude. He, he put them into slavery, essentially, and, and took all their land, all their money before that, and all their livestock in the middle of that. Sorry, I got the order wrong there. Now, read a few different commentators in this just to get a picture. And the one I think, the, the perspective that I think is the best is what's happening here is that, um, I guess I'll just, I'll, get, I'll, just, I'll just try to read this to you. Um, this is what one commentator said. Servitude was a common way of handling debt to keep people from becoming destitute. Joseph showed mercy to the people by allowing them the dignity of paying for the grain. Now, it's hard to understand in our modern culture where slavery is a lot different than it was back then. Um, But, you know, whatever you do with that, one other fact that's interesting to note is that typically the the percentage that that, uh, rulers would charge people for the seed grain was 40%. And so Joseph, at least in this instant, is reducing that by half. And so there's a, there's a sense here in the graciousness of how he is ruling in this picture. And so there's a couple things that we can take from this. 
You know, is Joseph doing something wrong here by reducing the people to servitude? Why didn't he just give them the food? You know, this commentator is recognizing there was somehow there was dignity in them being able to buy it and not just receiving a handout. You could go all kinds of ways with with interpreting that. But um, here's the here's the sense that there's a couple things that I sense that that God wanted to highlight for us in this. Um, The plan that the enemy has for the world is to reduce everyone to servitude and poverty. The reason there is poverty in the world is that is the plan of the enemy. For people to be enslaved, as we talked about last Sunday, for them to be impoverished, uh, and without dignity, whatever you do with, with that in the passage, whether Joseph is giving them dignity or removing it, depending on the culture. They're obviously thankful for it, but it's hard to know if that's politeness because they don't have any power. God's plan for his people and for the world is to bring us out of poverty and out of servitude and into freedom to bring about his kingdom and his purposes on this earth to make earth look like heaven. That is the purpose. But what we have to understand is that the greatest threat to that happening is not coming from outside of the church. You could debate this, but I think the greatest threat to God's kingdom coming on earth is not outside of the church, it is in it. The greatest threat we see to the Israelites walking out their calling comes from within. There is no enemy that they face that is able to stand against them unless, unless there's unbelief within A bitter, complaining, disconnected heart is the greatest enemy to the people of God and God's purposes on the earth. I'm telling you, it's not the devil. He is looking for people to cooperate with him, to to, to, to lean into unbelief, to not recognize that God is there working all along that his plans for us are good. And even when it doesn't seem like it's happening, we're still standing in faith and trying to follow as best we know. And when we don't do that, the spiral downward is bitterness, complaining, and what becomes a heart of stone, a heart that is disconnected relationally from people. Blaming, right? All those things. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. We need each other. I'm telling you, right? I'm preaching this to myself. I need you. 
Brian, I, know, I hear you. I hear your story from today. This is hard. Life is good. God's working, I know. Maybe hard, and maybe that's not the message in that moment. Maybe you just need to sit like Job's friends did the right thing in the beginning, just sitting and being quiet. I was reading a book yesterday by an author who is a Ph.D. psychiatrist, and he's talking. The book is called The Anatomy of the Soul, and he's talking about neuroscience. His name is Kurt Thompson, Thomas Kurt Thompson, and um, he tells a story about uh, his mother dying at 86, and as she's dying, he is describing how he is emotionally 100% disconnected from her, so he's not empathizing with her in her death because of the issues in her life that affected him. And the emotion that he is feeling is anger. Anger towards her for the way she's lived her life and how it's affected him. And here he's, he's saying, I am a psychiatrist, and I am, like, experiencing overwhelm and disconnect. <laughs> he's like, ah, you know? And he goes to this training about, this guy was talking about brain science, a lot of the stuff we've been doing recently, telling stories. And he just feels this, this compulsion to lean into asking his mother to tell her story to him again and being fully present to hear that story and receive it. And she was orphaned at the age of four, which you can just understand. It was her mother who died, and her father said, I can't take care of you, just kind of released her into the world. And through that, all the dysfunction that was in her life because of that desertion and loss, and then how that spiraled back and, and affected him and growing up in that family. And as he is actually just trying to sit and just hear the story, he all of a sudden the emotions are unlocked and he just starts to weep with her over the pain in her life. And he is set free. Like, in other words, he starts to now, the release of all of that grief for him and for her as he's empathizing and hearing her story um, leads him to now, and being able to now emotionally connect with her and release the anger and forgive. So I'm just saying, we need to tell each other stories. Like, just you listening to someone's hardship can unlock something in both of your brains, in your souls, that leads you into freedom, forgiveness, and a greater level of connection with people. You guys tracking with me here? This is, that's the place where we minister to one another so we don't get hardened by sin's deceitfulness, where the experience of our lives tells us God's not good, he's not with me, life is hard, that's, that's my reality. And, and simply by just listening and going to that place with someone can often even, even that is a powerful thing in our brains to help unlock the freedom of God and help us to now be able to perceive God's presence and know his love for us. Story is so important. Last point here. Okay, thank you for staying with me, and then we'll give you a few minutes to process this. Wherever you go with what Joseph is doing, is this a good thing? Is he being gracious with the 20% instead of the standard 40? Is he enslaving them, and he's an oppressor, and which is now going to get flipped on its head, and his people will then become the enslaved? I mean, it's this weird dynamic that's happening, right? Because in 400 years, they're going to be the slaves. Um, we don't know. The, the narrative doesn't necessarily answer that question, but what we know is that Joseph is not the Christ. He played his role and did not kill his brothers so that the line of Judah could go forward so that Jesus could be born. And he spared the lives of many. He certainly saved lives in all that region by giving and storing up all this grain. 
and listening to the voice of God when he heard it in the dreams of somebody else. Um, but he's not the Christ. And guess what? You're not either, which is a really good thing to know. Jesus is on the move, and he's over all. There's nothing he doesn't see. There's nothing he cannot do. And he is working. And we see the, one of the things at the end of this passage, we see this interesting thing, that Israel, at the time of his death, after a life that he describes as difficult, he leans and worships. Maybe I'm reading too much into that. But he leans and he worships. There's a place for sharing the story with one another. And sometimes there's a place where we just need to let it all go and we need to look at Jesus. We need to just worship him. Turn on the worship music. Sing that hymn. Go for a walk and get alone. And maybe it's pouring out your heart and all the pain. God can handle the questions. He can handle you cursing him out a few times. Okay? He hasn't struck me dead. I've done it. Okay? There's grace. But leaning into him as much as we know how and worshiping. Fixing our eyes on the one who is good. Asking him to reveal his goodness. Asking him to show us who he is. Asking him to open the scriptures up to us. So it's not just floating around in our left brain, but it's reaching our heart, our right brain, the emotional place. We're emotionally connecting to God and knowing in our knower that he's with us. Jacob worships even when he's faced with death after a difficult life. That's the way to life. Yeah? All right. So... I'm going to take a few moments and just say, hey, what, what was God highlighting to you today?